The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. Populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour on what looks to be, stop for a second, the first weekend of fall. It isn't quite fall yet, but they're telling us we might have as much as a third of an inch of rain tomorrow. So I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I looked at that. I mean, I, two-tenths of, a, of an inch. I'd buy that. That's like misty fog. But in September, a third of an inch, and then it ter- gets hot again. So... But it's a beautiful morning. And yes, it Vi- is. And Vince and I are really happy to be here. <clears throat> so it's also not yet quite fall in Washington, D.C., but the drumbeat of legislative stalemate is already chilling the prospects that Congress can actually accomplish anything significant in the few remaining days of the legislative year, and which is much, much shorter than the calendar year. So you and I have to pay taxes to pay for all of their round-trip airfare. Because I think there are about 17 actual work days left in the calendar. It's the perpetual campaign, folks. It's not Wait, they come back and they only have 17 whole days to work? Yeah, because they work they never work more than 3 days a week. When they're in session, when you think they're in session every week for a month, they really only work Tuesday through Thursday because, you know, they travel Monday and and they're in their district on Friday. And in addition to that, they have to have long periods of district time. I don't know. I uh, Anna did a couple of work of uh, town halls in the five weeks they were off, uh, and then they take their junkets and their vacations and so on and so forth for one hundred and seventy-four thousand dollars a year plus the best benefit package and retirement package in town. <clears throat> it's a good job if you can get it. And if you can get it, likelihood is you can keep it as long as you want it, because that's the way the system is rigged. 
Me, I tried once, and that was enough for me. <clears throat> that is, the hard part is getting there. But anyway, we digress, because you know what's going to happen during the rest of this legislative calendar this year? Well, pretty much little or nothing. We may get a 2019-2020 continuing resolution by September 30th. You better cross your fingers. Because if we don't, what we could get is another government shutdown. The House Judiciary Committee this week announced that they've claimed that they've opened what they call an impeachment inquiry. Okay, that's a term of art meaning that they're going to look under every rock for something they can use to gin up an impeachment hearing. And for those of you old enough to remember Nixon, you'll remember the impeachment hearing used to be nightly um, entertainment television. Well, Nancy Pelosi has a different idea. She thinks... Mm, not so fast on this impeachment stuff. And you know, in the final analysis, it's really only her opinion that counts. So you want a little bit of common sense to inoculate you against all those shrill voices of politicians and their media acolytes of all political persuasions? You know, they got to fill those 7 by 24 cable news channels. If The Democrats want to oust Donald Trump. They will have to convince voters in November 2020, not the U.S. Senate in January of the same year. Now, it is possible that those words could come back to haunt me, but I doubt it. Again, they're spending gazillions, I mean literally hundreds of millions of dollars on staff and Um, lawyers and outside lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, in pursuit of a a problem that they should have confidence they can solve at the ballot box. Which brings us to the third Democratic presidential nominating debate that was held in Houston, Texas last Thursday evening. Three, three, count them, one, Two, three hours. They claim 14 million viewers, which is the same as the second debate in Detroit and less than the, than the first debate in Miami. But I doubt many of those 14 million people stuck around for the whole thing. Speaking for myself, I went to a Uh, outdoor concert Thursday evening, and I can assure you that none of the 1,500 people or so who were there um, gave a single solitary thought to the Democratic primary candidates in those three three or four hours that they were there. So me, I T-voted. That makes watching it a lot more palatable, by the way, you, you, when you fast forward through the commercials, but also, which means it's really only about two hours and 20 minutes of debate. Um, <clears throat> but you know what? You can also do it in, in sessions. You don't have to uh, do it all at one. You don't have to do it all at one time. Um, you can... 
you can hang around and um, and watch an hour of it, stop it, go away, come back, etc. <clears throat> but that's not the point. The point is that ten Democrats, half of the of the aspirants, you know, there are twenty declared candidates, but only ten of them met the arbitrary criteria set down by the Democratic National Committee. And, you know, President Trump and I both watched so that you don't have to. But we'll give you the high points. President's been tweeting about them. I'm just going to talk about them. There were some fairy tales. There were some outright falsehoods. There was some intramural skirmishing. And you know what? A couple of good ideas actually got tossed out. So let's talk for just a moment before we go to break Let's talk about this age thing. John Kennedy was the youngest president ever elected in the modern era. He was 43. He was also the first president born in the 20th century, as he reminded us on Inauguration Day. Ronald Reagan today holds the record as the oldest man elected president. He was just over 73 years old when he was reelected in 1984. Now, that's a record that Donald Trump would break if he is reelected in 2020 when he will be 74. And on that note, I think we're going to take a quick commercial break and come back and talk a little bit more about what does age mean in the 2020 race and how does it impact you and me? Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. Now, I don't really understand why, in a country of 340 million people, we suddenly have the presidential race of the septuagenarians, as I said. Of the what? Of the septuagenarians. Oh, the people that don't eat meat? No. People that only eat fish. Well, I don't even know what that means. People who are over 70. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, I went back and looked at the, at the uh, age of every single person elected president in the United States. And in the modern era, they've been between, let's say, um, uh, 46 Clinton to, um, you know, Trump is the oldest at, at, at then I guess 70. Um, and, and because Reagan was only 69 when he was first elected. Only? Only. Only 69. Only 69. And he was then the oldest. All right. And now we are looking at right now, Elizabeth Warren is 70. Bernie Sanders is 78, and Joe Biden is 76. And by the way, Nancy Pelosi has them all beat. She is 79. Now, there is something to be said about good genes. But what puzzles me is why is everybody in the media and on that debate stage in Houston so worried about Biden's age? Even Sanders 
was worried about Biden's age, which I find a bit odd. You know, his gaffes, his little mistakes, his little um, verbal ticks, if you want to call them, are not new. They've been around ever since I can remember Joe Biden and his hair was black and he had more of it way back in my youth. Well, they're making an issue of his age because he's a front, very formidable front runner in this contest. But, you know, since I admit to being a grandmother, I guess I kind of live in something close to a glass house. So I don't want to cast stones. But here's the debate I would like to see. I, no septuagenarians and no 30, 30-somethings either. You know, you got and 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 then add there, that. Wait, wait, wait. There aren't there aren't any any thirty somethings in this thing, though. Are you kidding me? Who's who's in their thirties on the in this thing? Castro and Buttigieg are both in their thirties. Oh, hmm. okay. Buttigieg is only thirty-seven. Castro is fighting with being forty. Good luck with that fight. Yeah. Well, he, unfortunately, he's going to lose it. But you know how it how it goes. Um. <clears throat> so why don't we add? Two centrists back in. Um, Montana Governor Steve Bullock actually is rising in the polls. He does have a chance of being on that stage next time, even under these rules. But here's what I would do if I were queen. I'd add back into the mix uh, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, who I think has a really good sense and a lot of good ideas about heartland renewal and um, maintaining our industrial capability. And then I'd add back in also Montana Governor Steve Bullock because Bullock has a centrist um, sensibility uh, and and has is a Democrat who won in a Republican state. That means that he's got to be a centrist. He knows how to govern in the middle. He knows how to do things in a bipartisan fashion. Okay, and I think that's important. And on the other hand, I would drop Beto. I mean, how many reincarnations of one presidential candidacy can you have? And his 21st century, his attempt to cast himself as a 21st century version of Bobby Kennedy falls flat. Hamlet comes to mind more readily. We all knew Bobby Kennedy and Beto, you're no Bobby Kennedy, so give it up. But anyway, if we made those changes in persons, then I'd have a real roundtable debate, a format that allows the moderator to lay out one of the complicated issues that we're arguing about that we have to confront and solve, and then I would let the candidates argue out their potential solutions not allowing them to come to fisticuffs or use, you know, four-letter words, but generally allow them to have a dialogue that would really help the American people to understand their positions and to, to take a relative look at those positions and to learn something. You know, I, we have to make the assumption that when they put these plans out, they know more than we do. Now, I'm not sure that's a valid assumption, but it's the only one as a voter that you can make. And why this group? Why would I eliminate the septuagenarians and the 30-year-olds? Well, I kind of think you've got to be old enough to, have, to, to, de- to be able to demonstrate an understanding of the issues that is more than superficial. 
And you have to demonstrate that you are experienced enough to understand the process of reaching compromise and moving forward and execute a plan. And you know what else you have to be? You have to be young enough to have lived among the neighbors and and to live with your neighbors long enough after your presidency to suffer the consequences of your mistakes and the comfort of your successes. And those 70-year-olds, not likely to do that, although Jimmy Carter is working hard at proving us all wrong, knock on wood. The only problem with that whole little pair, you know, setup that I just gave you is that it's so rational, it absolutely cannot happen in American politics in the 21st century, especially not in the Democratic Party. So let's move on and find a few crumbs of possibility among the three hours of canned talking points and big and little lies. Let's talk about what we did not hear. Remember, they spoke for three hours on national television to 14 million viewers. And what did we not hear? A vision for America, a coherent philosophy to drive foreign policy. The word infrastructure, the words debt and deficits. Not a single candidate laid out a coherent vision for a 21st century America. And what do I mean by that? At the middle of this century, this is the America I, the candidate, want to lead you to, and I want to be judged against my ability to get to that vision. And you know what? That vision among those 10 candidates does not exist. And you know, without that vision, without an understanding of where they want the America your children grow up in and your grandchildren how are you going to determine that you want to vote for that person? You know, how do you want to have that person, um, that person's vision? You know, that person telling you, here's what we, what we have to change to reach this <clears throat> shining city on the hill. Here's what we have to change. Here's what we'll have to sacrifice. These are the things we will have to build together. Without that context, without that overarching context, you have no context for all their plans, and their plans mean nothing and cannot be, in, be enacted. And yet, if you were pressed on this Sunday or Monday morning, depending on when you're listening to the show, to state the vision for 21st century America among those 10 candidates, you couldn't do it because they haven't given it to us. Nor, in that three-hour session, did I hear a single candidate lay out a coherent foreign policy that our allies and our adversaries could understand and plan to be a part of. And on that note, I think we're going to go take a commercial break, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the Marshall Plan. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, 
back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And, you know, one of the things that that Democratic um, um, debate proved to me is the inadequacy of our public education system. You know, there was a lot of talk, a lot of pushback about, um, you know, uh, Europe uh, and, and the independence of Europe, et cetera. And, and a lot of, of uh, isolationism because, you know, and, and retreat in, um, in terms of military, et cetera. And a lot of, um, and, and, you know, it, it, it demonstrates a failure to understand that at the end of World War II, Europe was in ruins. Western Europe and Eastern Europe were in ruins. If it had not been for the Marshall Plan that first fed a starving Western Europe um, and then helped Western Europe to get up off its feet and then did something similar with Japan um, and to a lesser extent the Philippines, etc., um, we'd have today no European Union, no NATO, no UN, and we would not have had 75 years of peace in Europe, the first time since, um, let's say, um, the post-Crusades, that you've had 75 years of peace throughout Western Europe. And the Iron Curtain fell without a bullet being fired because of the Marshall Plan. But that's something the Democratic candidates seem to reject or probably don't know at all. And, you know, nobody seems to have a plan for all the plans they have to tame the nuclear ambitions of either Iran or North Korea. And you know what? I say and because I have a sneaky suspicion that Iran and North Korea are working together or sharing information, etc. It would It would be a very quick and efficient way for... Iran to um, get to meet the objectives it has without openly violating its deal with Europe that we used to be a part of, which really was a deal in order to come up with a deal. If you really look at what JCPOA means, it was the Joint Commission to propose an agreement. Um, and so that's where we are. But nobody, nobody's got, nobody has a plan for that. Nobody has a plan to deal with Russia's encroachment on Ukraine or, or Georgia. Thank you, Mr. President, for releasing those defensive weapon funds to the Ukraine this week as the Russians mass on the border of Georgia. If you were a candidate, if you, or I maybe better way to put this is if you, Mr. or Ms. Candidate, were president today, what would you do differently in these various hotspots that President Trump has done. And, and I will tell you that the first answer, work with the allies, is not a valid answer because those allies are looking to the United States of America as they have for the last three quarters or for the last century plus. They're looking to us to propose a solution to which they will be a part And then there's the matter of Russia's interference in our elections. Nobody even mentioned that. 
or the rupture of relations between two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, where there's a desire for the U.S. to act as a mediator, and yet not a word, not a syllable. So, Ms. or Mr. Candidate, what would you do? How would your policy be different? What would your level of engagement be? We don't know, and I don't know how to vote in an election, or I don't know the answer to those questions. But that's okay, because I'm not going to be voting in that primary. But amid all the talk about climate change and the need to urgently reduce our energy consumption, they really don't understand how fossil fuels are used. Um, Not a single solitary person on that stage mentioned the word infrastructure. They talked a lot about jobs, about, you know, universal basic income, about, you know, labor being at the table in trade negotiations and thus forcing other countries to pay more, et cetera. Um, But they never talked about infrastructure. Ours is crumbling around our ears, and it would create millions upon millions of really good-paying career jobs for millions and millions of people. And not all of those jobs would require a four-year college degree. But not nary a word, the word was mentioned. So I want to ask you, how do you build a 21st century manufacturing capability without improving our infrastructure? How do you move massive numbers of people without cars and petroleum-based products without a significant modernization of our mass transit systems? What about, in addition to uh, looking for alternative sources of electrical power generation, what about modernizing our incredibly vulnerable and localized power grid? And then there's the question of Flint, Michigan. And now, Newark, New Jersey, where all the residents have to drink bottled water because there's lead contamination in, their, in, the, in the pipes that come from their houses into their homes. So we know that those lead pipes are all over America. Did you hear anyone proposing that we ought to have a survey and we ought to figure out how to get lead out of the drinking water of American children on, on a, a massive and emergency scale, because it is an emergency. Lead is, um, causes uh, mental retardation in young children. And the EPA wants to move away from regulating tributaries to our major waterways in the face of massive and destructive floods that put all sorts of new contaminants into our water systems. I could go on, but you get the point. Not a syllable, not a syllable about any of those problems slash solutions. I stopped trying to add up the additional spending that these folks were proposing in any number of giveaways and social safety net improvements and expansions to cover more people. But with the singular exception of Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, and we could spend an hour explaining to you why that wealth tax will not work, 
and Bernie's pledge to, yes, increase middle class taxes to pay for health care with no cap in sight. Not a word, not a word, not a thought, not a syllable about the need to get a trillion dollar a year deficit under control or any thought to the risk of a debt crisis or the possibility of the United States of America defaulting on its debt. And that's not far-fetched. It's just a question of when. And then let me ask you, as we go to break, what happens when that, when that inevitable moment comes, that crisis? What happens to the worldwide monetary system, all of which is pegged to the dollar? But you didn't hear anybody talk about that. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And now that I've now that I've thoroughly um, depressed you by pointing out that, you know, um, we're we're on on track to have a monetary crisis if we don't get around to uh, very quickly to fixing um, our debt and deficit issues. Um, let's talk about some of the good stuff, okay? There actually were a couple of good ideas. I mean, there were a couple of moments in the three hours, and I, I will admit that, I, as I said, I watched it in bits and pieces. But there are a couple of things that Republicans ought to go, yeah, you know what? Not a bad idea. And one of those was the need to improve our K-12 through and K-14 through public education systems. And the first step, and, and I, I completely agree with this assessment, is that we need to improve the quality of our teachers. That we need some form of standardized testing for teacher trainees to be sure they have both the aptitude and the training needed to be good, successful teachers. That to be the secretary, a, a, a line in the job description to be secretary of education of the United States, one of the lines in that should be that you have some experience as a public school teacher. Arnie Duncan had that experience, and it showed in the ways that he was effectively able to take uh, things forward. And so then I'm just going to slip my mind the name of the person, but uh, Bush's uh, first secretary of education, the guy who, who helped to create No Child Left Behind, was also a public school teacher. I think that's a great, great idea. And the need to improve the use of charter schools so that they don't become a way for kids to escape the public school system, but actually serve their original purpose, which was to be a laboratory of innovation so that the things that worked better in those charter schools could be then spread through the public um, education system. I thought all of those were really pretty good ideas. Uh, Cory Booker talked about the need to to renew our focus on what are called the hidden wounds of war. That the Veterans Administration does a good job of bandaging people up, but that they're ill-equipped to deal with um, the hidden, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, et cetera, and the toll 
that repeated deployments take on a on a very small uh, professional um, uh, mili- you know group of volunteers who serve as the um, frontline troops in our military. And I thought that that is a point well taken. Policies that would encourage more family rather than corporate farming would do a whole lot of positive things to the quality and safety of our food supply and and more small farmers would actually uh, ensure better environmental stewardship. Really, really important, maybe should have been the place we started, was there was a consensus among these candidates, as much as they dislike the current president, that China presents a serious competitive and national security threat to the United States. And that's really important because one of the things that we worry about right now is that China is trying to outweigh President Trump. So what he heard, what what Chairman Xi heard, was that the United States has your number, China. There was also a recognition about China's adventurism, and they're uh, quite aggressive about it, in Africa and in Latin America, and that that constitutes a national security threat. There's a consensus that the U.S. should, to the extent possible, extract itself from Afghanistan. I think there is unanimity in the country that um, we need to do, we, we need to not keep an army in Afghanistan, but we need to ensure that in our departure, we don't risk further terrorist networks forming there. Remember that President Bush, Bush uh, referred to um, the beginning of our incursion in Afghanistan, that the war on terrorism would not, be sol- would not end in a surrender on, the, on a battleship like the Second World War did when the Japanese surrendered on the Missouri. But that is a generational struggle. So how do we manage a generational struggle with a minimum footprint in Afghanistan? And I was pleased to hear that. And that several people, um, while not embracing, did not embrace the Green New Deal, pointing out that global, that, that climate change is a global issue and that while the United States is today leading in that fight, that we need to do more and that it presents an economic opportunity. And I think all of that is absolutely true, kind of patently true. So let's turn, as I said, there's more, there's, there's some good news here too. Every single poll we've seen in the last month says that any of those septuagenarians are going to beat President Trump in 2020. And I want you to be skeptical about those polls. They are national polls, but we don't elect the president nationally. We elect him state by state or her. I, I, I want you to know that I'm, I'm open to that option, that someday in my life I will see a woman in the Oval Office. So despite knowing that it's a state by state, not a national election, and so I question what those polls really mean, I have to say that the overall attitude in the country and the 2018 midterms and the closeness of the um, victory, Republican victory in North Carolina uh, District 9 last week say that this is the election, this election is still the Democrats to lose. And you know what? On Thursday night in that debate, 
they were working really hard on losing. Here are a few highlights. Gun control, Medicare for all, military preparedness, immigration, trade, and a hostile attitude toward the concept, the very concept of capitalism. So even if the election, even if the election is held in the midst of a complete economic stall, which I don't think is going to happen, here are the issues that could cost the election, the Democrats, this election. Gun control. Yes, we need stronger background checks. You guys are tired of me saying that. And it would, and, and getting behind universal background checks. I mean, even, even the lieutenant governor of Texas has urged us to do that now. But when you start talking about mandatory gun confiscation by legislation, you're done in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Texas, Arizona. You're done. That's all, it's over. Medicare is not Medicare for all. Joe Biden is absolutely right when he slipped and said Medicaid for all, because that's what it would be. It would cost you a lot more and you would get a lot less. Because if you think you're paying high premiums now, remember, you will be paying the co-pays and deductibles of a whole lot of people who can't pay them today. But they, you know, so it, Medicare, Medicare for all could doom the, I, I, can, I can see the commercials now. And by the way, it's not the payer, it's the cost that we need to address. So those 150 million people those guys at General Motors who are going out on strike at midnight tonight, they like their private insurance. Their skepticism about Medicare for all is well-placed. And Sanders and Warren are absolutely wrong when they declare that the United States private, industry, uh, private insurance industry made profits of $23 billion last year. They're wrong because that profit, you know, you have to look at what the revenue is and what the expenses are to figure out what the profit is, okay? The profit turns out to be six-tenths of 1% of current health spending. Six-tenths of 1%. So a pretty small um, portion of the cost, and it's about 5% um, of revenue. They want to curtail military spending. The current Pentagon budget is a catch-up budget. We've got to make a major investment in new ships, planes, and technology. Otherwise, China will win the Cold War for the Pacific and Indian Oceans. And there's a race on to secure newly melted opportunities in the Arctic, where Russia has the largest icebreaking fleet, and China will introduce two or three nuclear-powered icebreakers in 2020, and the USA has got a couple of 30-year-old ones. When it comes to immigration... These Democratic candidates have a problem because I've run out of ways to count how many ways a candidate can say they support open borders without using the words open borders. And when it comes to trade, claiming that if U.S. jobs would not have gone to Mexico without NAFTA and that the Mexicans would buy more goods from us, well, I have to tell you, if it were not for the Michaeladoras, those Mexican nationals would not have the pesos to cross the border and shop at Walmart. Strengthening the Mexican economy is good for the United States. And maybe in a subsequent broadcast, we're going to talk about 
the Democrats' general hostility toward private industry. It is capitalism, ladies and gentlemen, that create the jobs, that create the income, that drives the consumerism. Our economy is 80% consumption. And without those jobs, there would be no tax revenue to run the government. And you know what? The only value of those corporations in the minds of Democrats, the only value of those corporations is not to create jobs or products or invent new things. Um, it's somehow um, only to be a source of tax revenue that the Democrats can spread around like, like candy. And Vince is saying in my ear, we got to go take a break. And we're going to do that. We'll be back with a couple of closing thoughts. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we have just a few moments for, you know, the close today. Um, I hope I'm, I hope it wasn't boring. Um, I tried to give you a synopsis of three plus hours of that were boring. Again, it, it concerns me, and it should concern you as a voter, that there's a general hostility toward the entrepreneurs who you are and work for among the Democrats. It's almost as though none of these 10 lawyers took, or if they took, passed Economics 1A because one more time, the corporations, the evil corporations, don't pay taxes. Consumers who buy their products pay taxes. Employees who make those products pay taxes. And shareholders who get a piece of the profits pay taxes. And if you want to know some more about the topics we've discussed today or listen to a podcast of this program, please go to ricochet.com or reimagineamerica.org. I know what interests me, but it's more important what interests you. So send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. You can find me on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, and you can find Reimagine American Radio Hour also on Twitter. And we'll see you next week with another update on the business of running a government. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word, and you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.